0: Before we begin, a note of warning. The language used and the topics explored in this podcast are not suitable for listeners younger than 18. Your discretion is advised. From the Spade & Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to reveal the real world of real estate with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Amy Romberg. (laughs)
1: How are you, Amy? It's so good to see you. It's great to see you, too. Oh my gosh, I'm excited to be here today.
0: I'm going to go first here. I thought the green room was absolutely amazing. That's what I do here. I steal the show. Do Uh, it. (laughs) This show is about me today, people.
2: Amy, thank you for going back and getting Aaron Bloom. Erin, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you liked the green room. That was it, fantastic. It, it, it was, it was amazing.
0: And, and I'm so glad I brought my bathing suit because the hot tub was just, just what I needed right before the show. The mere <laughs> fact that Justin handmade melon balls and put them onto skewers was, was one of the most impressive things that, that I think I've seen in a long time. So-
1: Oh, Erin, I'm so glad you noticed. It's
2: a late July tradition in our family to do the melon ball skewers. So, you know, it's just one of the things I just couldn't pass up this year. Aaron, Aaron, tell us a little bit about you, like how long you've been doing real estate.
0: My story for real estate is, I have about 10 years experience in real estate and that's mixed up over a few different um, kind of eras and lifetimes, you know, kind of timelines in my life. Um, I did a little bit of real estate uh, when I was younger in my twenties, took a break, um, got back into real estate and then most recently, I've been a licensed realtor for four and a half years almost now. And where are you practicing? Where do you live now? I live in Eugene, Oregon. Nobody's been there. It's, <laughs> it's a wonderful little town here, Tracktown, USA, Wine Country. And I grew up here. And so I work for Windermere. I work under the Windermere umbrella, um, and I have a team organization under that umbrella here in oh, That Eugene.
1: sounds great.
0: Right. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Eugene. So I, I went to school here. I lived here for a long time, high school, a couple years of college, and then I I also lived in Hawaii a lot when I was younger, so I had a split family. I'm a child of a divorced family, and so I spent summers, spring breaks in Hawaii, and the rest of my time here in in Eugene.
1: I just want to say, Aaron, I, I feel like you should have gotten Christmas breaks in Hawaii because that's when you want to escape the rain in Eugene, right?
0: Yes, yes. I got, I got a few, okay, a few go Christmas ahead. breaks in Hawaii. Yes, yes. I, I tried as a young child, I tried to make sure that I did it so that I would get Christmases at both households. <laughs> So if I could work it to where I got Christmas in Eugene and then flew over and also got Christmas in Hawaii, I was a very selfish child. I mean, Um, it's the nature (laughs) of
1: it, right? You're supposed to be. You're only in it for you.
2: I'm also from a split family. And I like to say that I spent the school year on the West Coast and then I summered in Kentucky.
0: Anytime (laughs) we get a chance to use summer as a verb, we should absolutely do that. So I'm going to use that going forward now. Thank you. Yes, yes. I summered in Hawaii. (laughs) That sounds much more bougie than my life really was. (laughs) Whenever.
2: I say, people always look at me like, oh, my God, you're twice the snob I thought you were.
1: I think there's something amazing also about summering in Kentucky.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Like you're not the bluegrass state. (laughs) Yes. You graduate from high school. You go, you start off in college. How was college experience for you? What was that like?
0: It it didn't work out well for me. So so I went to school. I went to high school. I was somebody who really struggled in school uh, my whole life. So I got horrible grades. You know, I'm not ashamed to tell my story. And, you know, I I was a kid who was I was a star athlete athlete for the soccer team, but I was also a big partier. But I I had a really hard time studying, test taking. School just didn't come easy to me. I gravitated towards having kind of this love for kids and teaching when I was younger though. So when I did go to college, uh, I went to early childhood education. So um, that's what I went to school for. I got straight A's in my early childhood education classes, and I got D's and C's in all my other classes. So um, really, I kind of had a niche there, but I didn't do well. Um, I struggled learning I struggled. focusing. I was also one that was working two jobs at the time while I was going to college. So I ended up dropping out of college, just shy of getting my early childhood education degree. Where did you head to from there? I kind of wandered. Um, I got out of college. I had some really good friends who had just spent four years in the military. They were my best friends uh, all through school growing up. And we all just kind of got together and said, where do we want to live? What do we want to do? Let's go on an adventure. And so we picked the warmest spot in the United States. during that week, and that was Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, And we all (laughs) packed up our cars and left. Uh, We had no idea where we were gonna go. We didn't know where we were gonna live. Um, We just kind of all packed up our cars and left. Um, and I left. That was the first time I'd ever left Oregon.
2: It's interesting with real estate, it's not necessarily about the being the best mathematician or the best speller or the best person who can remember a geography. It's about interpersonal relationships. And I was constantly in trouble. I remember in seventh grade, Mrs. Downey, my English teacher, wrote a note in my journal that I was a social butterfly and I would never amount to anything because <sighs> I couldn't keep my mouth shut during class. And now, like, I literally make a flipping living talking to people. That's <laughs> what I do. And I think for people that are out there that are considering a career in real estate that had a hard time in school. This is this industry is not about book smarts. It's really not. It's about relationships and being able to make bonds and connections with human beings and be trusted. That's really what it comes down to.
1: Erin. that you talk about that too, because I think there's so many folks who struggle with school just not being lined up for in a way that makes sense to how they learn. And the fact that you got A's in the classes that you were most interested in. And I just love that that's a conversation that you're willing to have.
0: It's also it's very important to see that I think people are starting to identify and realize that. And even with the way you asked me the question, did you go to school? You didn't ask me which school I went to, right? There wasn't an assumption because when people ask you what school or if I ask somebody else, what school did or what college did they go to? I put them in an awkward situation on how to answer that question.
2: Yeah, there's definitely an assumption there for sure.
0: I would think I was third grade by the time I first got in trouble had to stand out in the hall. um, And it was for me acting out in class. I was the kid that would act out in class for attention.
2: God forbid you have good relationships with other students and have friends and you want to talk during class. Like, I feel like that's (laughs) part of schools. You're learning how to negotiate working with other people and making things actually happen. And that gets downplayed so much in the educational system today. When you head out of of Oregon, you head to where do you land? And what's your job? How are you making a
0: living? So when I first land in Arizona, you know, we land in Mesa, Arizona. There's five of us living in a two-bedroom house, I believe, just kind of trying to figure life out what we're going to do. And I was the one that had to work. So I also was always the outlier in my friends where I like to stay close to my friends, but they were a little bit more book smart than I was. And so when they went to school and they went to college, they went into the military so that they didn't have to have a job when they went to school. Um, And they came out and they were in a four-year college and they didn't have to work. So when I landed in Arizona, I had to work right away. My first job when I landed, it there uh, because of my background in schooling was at a preschool so i'd worked at a, i worked at a preschool down there i loved it i went from that to working concrete demolition because it was wow. it was one of those transition <laughs> right and so what, what you're gonna learn is is over the lifetime of my career kind of before real estate, um, I had twenty two jobs between the time I ended high school and the time I started real estate. To say I have commitment issues might be, you know, fair. I was kind of wandering, always trying to find something that I was passionate about. Um and as soon as I didn't, I would leave it. And that goes for work, that goes for relationships, that goes for everything. So I've got I've got kind of this track record of of coming in and coming out of scenarios in life like that. The first time though, that I landed anything that was remotely about sales was Nordstrom. So that was when I was first introduced to Nordstrom was in Arizona. Uh, they opened a new store in the Chandler Mall. I saw air conditioning. And so I ran for that place to try and get a job. I realized really quickly, all they wanted was salespeople and I didn't want anything to do with sales. That's kind of where I led down that path.
2: You didn't want to do anything but sales. So what? where did they, where did they put you?
0: When I went into the interview, I sat there and I said, said, um, you know, do you have anything in customer service? Do you have anything in the stock room? Just put me somewhere anywhere but the sales floor. It's interesting, right? I'm I'm the the person that loves attention and loves to be the class clown. When I was younger, they identify it, which I don't think is the right identification. But if you put me in a face-to-face interaction with somebody where I'm required to actually be professional, I was scared to death. So they ended up putting me in children's shoes. They said they had an opening in children's shoes. And so I went, okay, I can do that. I think I can do kids' shoes. I don't have to know what I'm doing. I don't have to kind of be professional, at least from what I thought. And so I went there and I let all the other seasoned salespeople handle the sales. I let them deal with the people. I wasn't really worried about it because Nordstrom has an interesting system, right? They're they're commission employees, which a lot of people don't realize they're they're 100% commission. but they also have a draw. So if you don't make your commission, you'll just make their minimum wage. So I was really just in it for the minimum wage draw. And I wanted to play with kids all day. What I learned quickly was by playing with people's children and hanging out uh, with them and almost distracting them, I allowed the parents to shop. And so the parents now all of a sudden would get a comfortable relationship with me once they saw that I was, I had the ability to, to hang out with their kid and, and they didn't have to worry, they would start to wander and shop around the entire store and they would leave their kids with me in the, in the shoe department. <laughs> so now- You
2: became um, like at the Playland of Nordstrom. I was.
0: Yes. And I mean, I had everything going, right? I mean, we were, I was rolling around on the floor in my suit, right? So just uh, something that you wouldn't normally size up as being professional. The other thing I loved about Nordstrom is they encouraged behavior like that. They never really restricted us from being ourselves uh, when we were out yeah. in a sales environment, as long as you were staying you know, professional. You know, and a side note is, when you work in children's shoes, because the price points are so low, the commission is actually the highest commission rate in the store. But since all these parents started shopping, they started bringing all of their clothes to me from all around the store and letting me (laughs) ring them up for everything. So within the first year, I was the top salesperson, not just in kids' shoes, in the entire store. And so then it gave me a little bit of confidence as far as customer service and sales. And so I really started to identify some some different areas in the store where I thought I might have fun and so I transitioned over into men's sportswear, which was a whole different ball game for me. I had to learn how to interact directly with men on on a one-on-one basis and learn how to kind of shop for them. But more importantly, what I really needed to learn how to do is engage with their spouses. That's where I really stepped out of my kind of bubble and the normal bubble of sales, where I really started trying to push the limits of Nordstrom. So, we would get a line of clothes in. I would call a customer up directly. I would tell them about it. They might not even live in Arizona. I would try and figure out if it was something they wanted and then I would ship it to them. Um, if we couldn't ship it to them or they were in town and they couldn't have time to come into the store, I would ask permission from the managers to load my car up with clothes and drive them over to their hotel. I was really kind of pushing the boundaries of what did it have to to happen inside the store or what is service really like. I never really got pushed back from Nordstrom if it was if it led with service. And so that was I think the first time in my life it was ever infused into me that service is selling. And if you always lead with service the sales come naturally. You don't even have to ask for them.
1: Trajectory is just sort of amazing from like the reluctant seller of kids' shoes to someone who was like, oh, wait, I, I'm going to see what I can do to creatively push the boundaries of this organization. its
0: It was an environment that at the time, the, the retail business was great. Nordstrom was growing. They wanted to fast track me into management. So they have a future Nordstrom leaders program that by about year two, they wanted to put me through. And then I started having these kind of grand visions of being a buyer because I learned what a buyer was like. And I was like, they get to travel the world. They get to work out of Seattle. This is this glamorous lifestyle and I'm 23 at the time. Um, so I'm kind of just, you have these big visions of what life could be like. But what was interesting in the back of my head, all I ever wanted was to get married, have kids and raise a family. That's all I really ever cared about. And that lifestyle of being a buyer was not conducive with starting a family and young. And so I actually, I got out of the entire program and I stopped moving forward with that program.
2: Where did you head next after Nordstrom?
0: I was in a pretty, pretty heavy relationship in Arizona. I was engaged. Um, I had bought a house. So uh, what you're gonna learn about me also, you know, is the full disclosure what I like to tell people is the first time I was engaged, I was uh, 17. I have overall been engaged five times throughout my lifetime. So I loved to fall in love and I was always kind of bigger than life. I wanted my life to be like a romantic movie, right? And so I, I put really hard for that. I'm engaged. I bought a house. uh, And my father, my future father-in-law is one of the biggest property flippers in Arizona. And so he's a huge investor. And so he wanted me to work for him. And so I started working for him. um, And it took him about two months before he talked me into leaving Nordstrom's entirely and working for him full time. And so we started flipping houses. And that was my first introduction to real estate. I learned that I love a lot of aspects of it. I really love taking beat up old foreclosure homes and just making them beautiful and then selling them. I love seeing that transition firsthand. Uh, so I got to learn project management. I got to learn how to budget. Um, I got to learn how to manage crews of people. I got to learn how to buy foreclosures at the courthouse steps and what that process was like um, and how to research and find them. I think the biggest aspect about that time in my life was I started having some ethical and kind of emotional pulls because part of my process and part of what I had to do was knock on the door tell you that we had just bought your home and that you had a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever time we deemed necessary for each house to leave. Uh, and you didn't really have a choice. Uh, and so
2: not a lot of tenant rights there in Arizona. Yeah, it's n- a lot more landlord rights. Not, there. Not, yeah. a,
0: not a lot of tenant rights, especially in that time. Right. I mean, we're talking, mm-hmm. you know, early, early 2000s. And so And Arizona's the wild, wild West, right? It's I mean, you knock on your door and and you just you got to get out. I was met with all sorts of reactions um, from people. But probably one of the most impactful was when you have to let families know that they have to leave and they don't know where they're going to go. And so it wasn't long before that was something that I didn't want to be doing anymore. And so as soon as I knew I didn't want to be doing it anymore with my track record, I was quickly looking for my exit to try and figure out what the next thing in my life was going to be.
2: So what was it?
0: Oddly, enough, it was lending. And it came kind of as a surprise. So during this period, uh, towards the tail end of foreclosures, uh, my mother got really sick. She got cancer. Uh, she lived in Oregon. I was living in Arizona. I am one of those types of personalities that, you know, I'm a barely family oriented. So all I wanted to do was go take care of her and be with her. So in the matter of about two weeks period, packed up, told my fiance I was moving to Oregon to take care of my mother And I actually told her that I didn't want her to come, um, that I just wanted it to be me. But I also knew that I was trying very hard. And you'll learn throughout my life, um, if you know anything about me, I tried very hard to fit people into a mold um, of I want to create this perfect uh, American dream family. And so what I hadn't really paid attention to because everything was moving so fast was this probably wasn't the right woman for me and I probably shouldn't be marrying her. And so my mom being sick was kind of my excuse. It was my get out of jail free card to, to leave. So I packed up and left and sold the house in Arizona. I did very well with the sale of the house. I didn't really have a landing spot or a job in, in Oregon. And that's when I got into lending. I got into lending because I didn't need the money, but I wanted to try something new where I didn't have a boss was my first initial reaction. and But I didn't know that what that meant was I had to create and run my own business. I, st- I still didn't know what, know what that meant. I knew that So part
1: of that sounded good. (laughs) The no boss part was like, yes. The
0: the, the no boss part (laughs) is when a young person might be really attracted to go towards something. But the part I didn't know is I knew nothing about running a business. I knew nothing about what it took to run a business. So in that time, you know, we're 2004, 2005 for lenders. The phone is ringing off the hook. We have no income, no asset loans. We basically, you you call up, you fill out about a two-page loan application and you just write numbers in and nobody verifies them. And so I was in that environment. So it was really hard for me to be young and not be attracted to that because we were making lots of money. We didn't have to work very hard, but I really didn't know the ramification and aspects of what I was doing. The banks were pushing very hard for us to sell these loans. Uh, They were not very attractive loans to people that didn't know how to use them properly. And us as mortgage brokers, I mean, there was a lot of us across the entire country that were just brokering these loans because we didn't know any better.
2: We're doing loans, I'm thinking that this is before the crash of 2007. Yes. 2007 hits. What happens?
0: So 2007 hits, as I'm trying to build the American dream, I'm also a typical story of the guy that works and makes a lot of money and has no financial awareness. So, you know, I bought a home, I've turned that home into a rental, I bought a second home, which is a huge, enormous home that is much more than something I should ever be living in or buying. Um, I have a boat, I have a beautiful car, sports car, I have a pickup truck, I have four quads, and I'm living in a 4,500 square foot house where two of the rooms, I kid you, you not had furniture, the rest of the house was empty. I didn't even know how to shop for furniture. That That's kind of the state I was in in life. And so by this point, I have a son. I'm just getting ready to get married to his mother. And so this is my, my first marriage, my first wife. Uh, and then we have another child very quickly because that's what I want. I want a family. I want a wife. I want children. I want the American dream. And then the market crashed and I was looking at losing everything. And so I was the phone wasn't ringing. I wasn't making any money. I pretty Pretty much stuck my head in the sand I kind of hid in my house and wasn't quite sure what to do as I watched kind of everything fall apart around me I couldn't pay my bills I was worried about them taking my cars away and taking my houses away and so I packed everything up which is what I do right and what I'm learning later in life through lots of counseling on all that fun stuff right I'm a runner I pack up and run and try and geographically correct my life like my problems will go away if I move to another state I lost the houses um, I lost the cars um, I kind of started over from scratch in Arizona with my new family and my young boys, their babies at the time. I landed back at Nordstrom. I kind of went back to that place that was comfortable, that I actually knew that I enjoyed my job. But this time when I landed back at Nordstrom, I landed in women's shoes, which is a whole different Ball of wax for uh, customer service, sales. I just
2: love that you said I I landed in women's shoes and (laughs) you stuck that landing, man. That (laughs) four-inch heels. Yes. Done. Totally.
0: So that, that is a different department in Nordstrom. If anybody has been to Nordstrom Women's Shoes, I mean, it's where they started was in shoes. It's kind of the root, uh, But also it's where they separate whether or not you're going to make it in retail sales. I mean, they, they kind of say if you can survive and make it successfully in women's shoes, you can pretty much make it anywhere. And I thrived. I was there for a while longer. You know, it wasn't till I didn't leave Nordstrom again until... I moved back to Oregon.
2: And so you head back to Oregon, you leave Nordstrom. What's your next thing? What's the, in the line of 22 jobs, which one is this? Yeah, there we
0: so, go. so I head back to Oregon. And as soon as I land in Oregon, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. And uh, I had a good friend who was in medical sales. My interview was at a bar where they were all drinking and telling war stories. And and that was basically my interview. And of course I get, I get hired because at that point in my life, I was also a professional drinker. Um, and so the world's lined up great, right? Same thing. I get in there. I do well. Um, I had some fast traction. I moved up in the company, but then I was in a world where I was sleeping with my phone in my hand. I probably worked 60 to 70 hours a week. Um, and I was on call 24 hours a day from doctors and surgeons. So I have young kids. I'm the dad pacing the soccer field with the phone to my ear the entire time, uh, trying to make myself believe that I'm there for my children, but I was never connected. I was always kids first. Um, And so when I left that job, was about 2 weeks after Father's Day. There was there was a Father's Day project my my wife had done where she asked my kids to write down what's your dad's favorite thing? What's your dad's favorite place to go? What's your dad's favorite thing to do? My dad's favorite thing to do both children was work. My dad's favorite place to travel was Lincoln City. They didn't know anything about Lincoln City, Oregon. They thought it was where I loved to travel. That was where my bi- single biggest surgical account was. What do you want to you know what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to get a cool phone and work like my dad so all of these things that my kids were idolizing about me had everything to do with the things that I didn't want to be as a father and so I had a wake-up call and I actually resigned from that job fairly fairly soon after that and then I bounced around between little jobs here and there just trying to make money but it wasn't just a realization for me in life about my career and what i was doing and what kind of father i was being it was also the realization that that first wife um that i had you know we ended up getting divorced shortly after that also because there was a lot of realizations of this is a world i was trying to create but this wasn't a world that was rooted in the things that you need to be rooted in to actually create the kind of life you want years later i met my now Current wife, my chapter two, as we like to call it, right? This is our chapter two. And she was my biggest motivator for getting back into real estate. Motivates you get back into real estate. And so what's the process to do that? I had wanted to get back into real estate. So I had applied for my real estate license uh, and I, I started real estate school, but I knew enough about my past with the foreclosures and bankruptcies and all of this stuff that when I went to apply for my real estate license with the state, you know, I didn't get the automatic reaction. I got the we need to investigate this further to see if. We're even going to let you become a licensed realtor. It took about a year and a half to two years for them to kind of go through finding out if I was going to be approved. And it was because of my bankruptcies and my foreclosures. They needed to do a little bit of research to see if they were going to allow me to work in this space. I was 80% done with real estate school, but I didn't finish it because if I finished it internally, I know now. I wasn't quite sure why I didn't finish before then, but I didn't want them to tell me I couldn't. If I didn't finish real estate school, then that was a perfect excuse for me not becoming a realtor. But if it was because they told me no, then that would be because of I couldn't get it because of something my pa- in my past I had done, or that means I would have had a disapproval.
2: You finish school, you're vulnerable. Yes. You don't finish, it's your choice. You're in control. Exactly. You do finish, they're in control, you're vulnerable. And so what happens? I mean, clearly so, you're well, a real estate agent well, now. Well, so. and,
0: and, yeah, and I, I'm at a point where I'm still trying to live in the perception that I, I have control, right? I wasn't willing to be vulnerable. I wasn't willing to turn things over in life. I wasn't really willing to do any of those things where I actually, you know, let people know, hey, I have these insecurities. And hey, I have these areas of my life where I'm kind of afraid. So I'm going to try and keep control. And so when I met my wife, when I met her, I made some, some rules of what if when I meet this woman, uh, we talk open and honestly from day one, 100%. And, and what if we talk about the, the truth, and we talk about the things we're scared of. And that's how we, we worked really well in the beginning.
2: So there's a big dichotomy here. I mean, you're talking a lot about not wanting to be vulnerable and not willing to have intimacy trying to make this like fake false dream and like here you are in our podcast i mean all seven of our listeners are going to hear everything you just said was like very self-deprecating to the point where you're like and this is another time that i failed and here's another time that i failed and like and it's one of the things that actually attracted me to you was the first time i met you i think that we went like to the vulnerable place in like three seconds so i mean with this most recent marriage with your wife that you are with now it must be just a complete and total different Aaron bloom than what there was before. Totally different. Uh,
0: up until that point in my life, every woman I had met and dated and been engaged with, they, they met the person that I thought I wanted or needed to be in order to be whatever. Um, and so that was also a chameleon because I was a different person for each person because I was trying to create what I thought they wanted in life. And so when I met my wife now, it was yeah, it was a very vulnerable state where I said, what if, what if we just do this? What if we just drop all the walls? And it's funny because that's what got me to finally get into real estate. Was she turn around and she kind of flipped the mirror around and volleyed that back into me and said, "Why don't you go do th- the thing that you're you think you're most passionate about that you want to do?" what you're the most scared of. Because that was truly what, what I was at. I was at this crossroad of, the thing that I really wanna do is the thing I'm scared to death of. because get uncomfortable, right? Let's get uncomfortable because, because what do I want to do in my core, my core from my childhood, because I was raised by a single mother who struggled and I love her, but she made a, you know, didn't make a lot of money. I was the poor kid in school. What did I want? I wanted to be a provider. I wanted to have a family and I wanted to be a provider. And I was scared to death that I wouldn't be able to do that in real estate. I've got two kids now. I've got this new life, this new woman that I'm in love with. And what if I can't financially provide a good life for her? What if I fail, right? So she pushed me and pushed me and pushed me outside of my comfort zone to where I did it. When I got the approval and I finished school and I became licensed, the first place I went was Windermere. I I knew the brand. I knew the owners. I had known a little bit about the other companies in town, you know, which there's great companies. Remax is great. And I mean, there's a lot of good companies in town. Berkshire is great. But Windermere was the only place that I saw that aligned itself with the family and core values that Nordstrom had.
2: Amy, would you agree with that? You are also part of the Windermere family. Yes.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think it was, it was an easy, it was sort of a not choice for me in the same way. It sounds like Aaron, I just like, I mean, in part because someone that was ahead of me that I trusted so much was there, obviously that also all resonates.
0: When I met with the owners, which currently the time was the Powell's, Matt Powell and Elliot Wood, I had an interesting candid conversation with them, which is how, how is this going to work? And there's a lot of companies out there, right. When you're starting in real estate that, you know, we'll give you leads and we'll do this and we'll, we'll, you know, some of them are gimmicky. Some of them aren't. They were the, first ones that sat down and said, this is going to be a struggle and you might not, you might not make money for the first six months.
2: This is all on you, bro.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I really hope you have some money in the bank because this is going to take a while. And I walked away from that just kind of going, okay, like this is what it's going to take.
2: I think a lot of, of companies out there like to pretend that real estate is a basketball game. It's not, it's a wrestling match. Like your team is there and supporting you, and they're like, you're, you're doing great. But like, if, if you get penned, it's you, if you win, it's you, like you have supporters, but there's not a team out there, like passing you the ball and setting up your shot. Like that is, it is not a basketball game. It's a wrestling match.
0: And and they said that they said, we will give you the tools and we will help to show you how to build your business. But this is your business. Uh, And I think they were the first ones that actually acknowledged and verbalized to me and said, we work for you. And so to get a company and a brand to actually acknowledge the truth about the way real estate works, which is owners of franchises work for their real estate agents. And so the mere fact that they acknowledge with kind of changed my view on just the industry as a whole and just went, oh, okay, it's important to me to figure out who I want to align myself with for brand and character. But this is my deal
2: the first time i ever heard that real estate agents pay the agencies that they are i, I was like what what is how what why would you pay your employer to employ you and it is this kind of backwards setup where you pay a desk fee and i think a lot of new real estate agents people who are looking to get into real estate don't understand that the agency that they are with the office they are with they are there to serve the real estate agents the real estate agent is the client in that situation and so they're providing you with your xerox machines and your liability insurance and your um, guidance and your desk and your pens and all those things that you need in order to do real estate that's what their job is to provide all those things for you and a lot of people do not understand that
0: but their success and their brand is a hundred percent dependent upon the real estate agents that represent them yeah Correct. Right. (laughs)
2: And so there is this push and pull as to who they are allowed, who are they going to allow to be, to bring on as clients.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Okay. So we fast forward. We're now a real estate agent, now a real estate agent for like four and a half years. All of a sudden we, land this thing called the Midtown. First off, what is the Midtown?
0: The Midtown is a new condo development in Eugene. So uh, if people don't know about Eugene, Eugene is a slow growing town. So the previous condo development that was built here of the similar size, which we have 40 luxury condos, was 15 years ago. Um, so that's how often a new condo development gets built in our city. Um, So it's it's comprised of 40 luxury condos, some nice amenity spaces, and then a commercial aspect. So it's a mixed-use building. So the commercial aspect of the building is actually owned by the Eugene Ballet. And then there's an architecture that owns one of the other condos in the building. So it's 100% owned. Uh, it's not retail space, but it's this new hub for Eugene where all of the performance arts groups get to live, collaborate, and kind of breathe under the same roof um, and rehearse. So it's new rehearsal space for all of these groups also.
2: What's your role in the Midtown?
0: I am the exclusive listing real estate agent for the entire project, which is great. That's outside. That doesn't include the commercial aspect because those those areas were already pre-negotiated before I came on board. My actual role in the project is project manager for all things real estate related, marketing, advertising, graphic design, public relations, new homeowner orientation, and onboarding existing homeowner, customer service, and kind of all in all problem solver. So Mm. I'm on speed. I I am the concierge. Mm -hmm. I'm basically the full concierge for the building. That was not aware to me that that would be a job duty when I first got this project.
2: So a 40 unit luxury condo building in Eugene sounds a little bit like an oxymoron. This is like, you know, jumbo shrimp or military intelligence. Yes, This is not the kind of thing that just falls in your lap. Like this just wasn't handed to you. How did you go from being like, you know, kind of novice, new guy, real estate agent to like now all of a sudden you have like kind of the the biggest project in Eugene in a long time, in like 15 years, the biggest project in Eugene. How does this happen?
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah. And Yeah, it's not kind of it is. I mean, it's one single project is almost 30 million dollars in volumes for sales. So for Eugene, that's 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 one of the largest single sales projects around uh, besides, you know, a mass subdivision. In retrospect, when I go back, I can easily say, oh, well, this just kind of happened by accident. But, you know, the more and more you dissect it, it was organic, right? And so it was, it was super I, organic. I, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> targeting uh, this project to try and become the listing agent by any means. A, uh, of course, because uh, hopefully everybody's learned. Uh, I wouldn't personally think that I had the ability to do that because that would be much bigger and, and far outside my means. Um, I wouldn't have the confidence to even approach a project like that. But about a year prior, I had been interested in development and so. So I did know through passing a gentleman that was in kind of development and apartment development. And so I had invited him to coffee. And one thing I learned through Ninja, uh, which is a Windermere program that they offer to real estate agents, is learn how to stop talking. Uh, And this is actually is something that my communication therapist with my wife uh, also tries to teach me is just learn how to stop talking Um, (laughs) because I can't learn anything while I'm talking. So I go to this coffee and that was my first goal was I'm just going to ask him some questions and I'm going to listen because I really did want to learn about just development. I knew nothing about it. Uh, It fascinated me. And so he taught me a little bit about a business and his projects and things that they went. He was very, very willing to share. Uh, And then after that coffee, I followed up with a handwritten note, uh, which is also something I learned, you know, in this. Windermere program and this Windermere family is the power of note writing. And it was something that was completely foreign to me in the past. But what was interesting is, you know, I'm just realizing this now. and, And honestly, I didn't even realize this until this second. As a child, ever since I was very little, I used to collect and put in a drawer all of the notes and all of the cards that my grandparents used to send me. Birthdays, Easter, holidays. It didn't matter what it was. I always scrolled them away and saved them. I never threw them away for some reason. And it's funny, I'm just putting two and two together now. Like that's the power handwritten notes have no matter where you are in life. They're special. They are so They're
2: special. special. Where somebody took the time to write something down. Like they took five minutes to like pick up a pen and actually put it to paper and express emotion towards you. Like it's so special and so rare today.
0: You know, Yeah. And I still don't even give it as much weight as I should, even though I'm sitting here talking about it. Right. I, I still do it. I still practice it uh, regularly. That's what I did. And I followed up and we kind of left it from there. We didn't really connect a whole lot. And then um, some time passed and they had called me to their office for a meeting and I wasn't really quite sure what the meeting was about. Um, I knew a little bit about the new project that they were kind of involved in because there was a big hole in the ground in the middle of the city. And so I ended up in this interview that I wasn't prepared for and that I didn't expect coming. And I was kind of blindsided. I walked into a room and there was a couple people sitting around a table and they asked me to sit down and they started talking about this project and that they were going to be interviewing and looking for a representative to represent the sales for the entire project. So I was completely caught off guard.
2: They're suddenly like they they pull you in, they do this interview and you didn't even know. So like, how did you even answer any
0: questions for them? I said, I'm not quite sure, uh, but I'll find out. Probably more often than I answered a question with actually some sort of knowledge. That was another thing where I really tried um, and I still try to this day and and I fault sometimes. But I said, if I'm going to become a real estate agent and if I'm going to create a career out of this, I'm going to approach it the same way I'm going to approach this relationship with my wife now and kind of how I'm trying to approach everything in life was if I can't be 100 percent honest, open and genuine uh, and vulnerable, I don't want to do it. And if I don't become successful in this industry by doing that, then it's the wrong industry for me. But I was scared. I'm with big developers, and I'm sitting across the table from these guys. These guys are multi-millionaires, ten times over, right? Um, they're just people. They're just, but they're just people, right? But it, my my inside yeah. voice is like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. I said honestly, a lot of the things I just need to get back to you. I'm not quite sure about a lot of this stuff. But what they said is, they said, here's the thing that the why why you're in the room, and here's here's why we called you was we were we were really attracted to your marketing. You are doing things differently in Eugene as far as marketing property and visually and doing storytelling, the storytelling was the aspect that they really gravitated to. I, I started that pretty early in my career because I used to obsess over watching what top brokers in other big cities do. And I wanted to figure out how to bring that to Eugene. So one of my goals yeah. was to change the way Eugene did real estate. And so that, that's that's where we left it. Yeah, I, I left kind of with my head spinning and they, I knew they wanted <laughs> to have a follow-up meeting. Uh, where they wanted me to come back and kind of be prepared and put together what a listing contract might look like if I was to represent them on this project.
2: When you and I first met, I think I was speaking at some thing, I don't remember... I remember you came up to me afterwards and like you offered your your big old paw and you're like we're gonna shake hands and you and I are gonna be friends from now on and I was like okay whatever like, and I'm usually pretty gregarious and like you you out gregarious me by a long shot and I think I picked up the phone and I called Beth Kellen because you know it wouldn't be an episode of Behind the Yardside without mentioning Beth Kellen and I said. <laughs> So there's this dude, Aaron Bloom, like, what's his story? And she's like, oh, he's great, he's fantastic, you have to get to know him. And I was like, okay, all right, I'll give it a try. (laughs) But I gotta say, like, over the years, I mean, it's been probably, I don't know, three and a half or four years since we've met each other, and over the years, you have consistently like, reached out and just be like, hey, I got a question for you, or hey, do you want to come stage the Midtown for us? Which, by the way, thank you for including us on that project, I appreciate it. It's, It's really interesting that you've always reached out, and I'm not even one of your clients, I'm a service provider, and you're still doing that. And so I feel like... It's kind of just in your nature to want to get to know people. Like, you're very inquisitive. And I think that's what turned this handwritten note. I just have a feeling that when you walked away with I don't know, if I'll find out, you probably had a list of things written down, and you probably went into, like, major research mode, and the second you found something out, you were, like, letting them know. And then they're like, fuck, this Aaron guys, not gonna ever going to leave us alone. <laughs> maybe he just didn't go away.
0: Exactly. So, <laughs> so the other aspect of me that, that my wife doesn't like so much is that I'm very obsessed when I find something that that I really want. I immediately reached out. I called uh, some of the owners of the real estate companies in Portland that I knew that had been developers or worked on development projects. I drove to Portland. I started driving around the downtown Pearl District in Portland because I just wanted to learn more about condos and more luxury condos. And I started asking everybody I knew. I started interviewing lenders about condo lending and saying, what are all the challenges? I really wanted to learn what people knew and how they could be helpful. But what I really wanted to learn and my biggest question for most of these people was, what would you do different? How did it go mm-hmm. wrong? Where where did you run into stumbling blocks? Because what Let I just learned from your mistakes, right? <laughs> yes. What I yes. wanted to bring back to that second meeting was information and something of value to help them possibly avoid something that could happen that somebody else has done, right? I wanted to walk back into that meeting with value. And I wasn't quite sure how to do that at first, right? I mean, I could put together a listing contract and something that's attractive on paper, but that's not valuable to people like this. And it was scary. Don't get me wrong. It was scary to call up an owner of a Windermere in downtown (laughs) Portland that I didn't really know anything about, except for they had uh, experience in development. You know, and this is Todd Prendergrass, who's an amazing guy mm-hmm. in Portland and Beth works with Todd and they're all right. And he picked up the phone and he talked and he was open because that's also what, you know, the, this, this family inside of Windermere does, right? They just I take was just going
1: to say that, Aaron, I, that's been such a joy for me to discover. This is a little sidebar, but that when you do pick up the phone and call somebody from Windermere like that, it's very likely they're going to be super responsive. Yeah. And Todd was,
0: and I that called Beth amazing. Beth was on my list, right? I called <laughs> Beth and we had, we had breakfast and I, I kind of knew Beth, but I didn't really know Beth very well yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm like, we're sitting down at breakfast in Portland. Uh, and what I also learned, the importance, the difference is, is some things, I just have to get in my car and drive to do in person. When I'm able to have breakfast or or lunch with Justin, when we get together, it's so much more important to do that face-to-face in-person when we can. And so I'm I'm excited also that we're getting back to that in life now.
2: It's one of those things that in, in this community, and when I say this community, I'm speaking in terms of real estate, that whether you are in LA or you're at Windermere or you're in Seattle, or if you're in Wichita, Kansas, no matter where you are, every single relationship around you matters. And so when you don't answer that phone or you don't have the keys in the lockbox when you're supposed to have them there or you don't call to schedule the D stage and your closing gets screwed up everybody knows everybody and everybody talks to everybody and so burn one bridge burn 50 bridges like that's just the way this community is and the the reason why mean people don't survive in real estate is because eventually everyone hates you and you get pushed out because you can't get anything done and so you know kindness is such a huge integral value. Um, You know, being thoughtful, being graceful, following up with other people, being slightly adept or being able to at least do the research and figure out what the heck it is that you're supposed to be doing. These are the things that make real estate agents. It's not A's on your calculus test. It's being a nice person. Like that is the thing that, that makes success.
0: The value of being able to be comfortable with asking somebody for their professional advice, even though my first fear might be, Why would they share that with me? Because a lot of a lot of mentalities is, you know, this is my ball. I don't want to play with anybody else. Right. And so I have to also make sure that I'm very aware that I do the same thing when people call me uh, because they do. People call me all the time now. And, you know, I want to grow a team. I want to do this. What should I do here? And I have to make sure I take the time to actually give genuine answers. Uh, I have to talk to appraisers when appraisers call me and ask about a house. I have to actually take 10 minutes and talk to them where most realtors just hit ignore.
2: Well, do you know why my company will jump? through their buttholes backwards for anything for you is because you are always there for us. Whenever I have a question, when I called you up yesterday and I was like, Hey, I need a I guess on the podcast, what do you do? You, you wrote back one thing, 100%. That's all you wrote <laughs> back. And I was like, he's in. And within 24 hours, we're sitting here, here we recording. And so because I know you'll always be there for me, I will always be there for you. I had a client reach out yesterday. They're not a client actually never used us before. And they're like, I'm listing my home I got 30 houses I sell 30 houses a year this is my own home I need you to do this project for us next week and I only want to pay you $5,000 well it's a $13,000 project and it's gigantic and it's going to take us at least two days to install it I I can't do those things and they're like well you're missing out a giant giant opportunity with me and I'm like bitch I don't know you (laughs) I don't know you (laughs) I, don't, I have no idea who you are. And you're promising me the world and telling me that like your first project with me is going to be a giant pain in my ass. And so do I really want 30 more giant pains in my ass? A, a like, giant
1: pain in your ass that I'm not gonna pay you very
0: much for.
2: Yeah, like you <laughs> See, You just put like 14 parameters on me about how terrible this is gonna be at work with you.
0: Why? I, I love people like that. I do, because what I say, and for you, right, is, is people do that all the time with me. And I say, you know what, this doesn't look like it's a good fit, but but I would gladly introduce you to a discount broker. Gladly (laughs) share those with you. (laughs)
2: Yeah, unfortunately, my fee is not 1%. But I know some people who would do that for you. Absolutely. And it just becomes this thing like people don't understand the power of relationship that like if you want somebody to be able to jump through hoops for you, well, then you should probably treat them well and not beat them down the first time you meet them. So tell us about your kind of your biggest lesson to date so far in real estate.
0: My biggest lesson to date in real estate would probably be for this project. I learned a lot about time management. I learned a lot about feeling like i shouldn't ask for help i I think a lot of people in our industry feel like they have to know all the answers or they have to pretend that they know all the answers and they have to pretend that that i have to be the professional all the time and get everything right my biggest lesson was that i didn't allow i never allowed myself the room for mistakes so now, now learning that lesson, especially on this project, because mistakes were made and things had to change and I needed help. And there was areas where I couldn't do it all. I actually had to reach out to people and say, I need help. And then being able to make mistakes. Now I go into scenarios with the conversation with clients where that very first meeting, I say there's gonna be mistakes and there's gonna be stuff that's not gonna go right. And there's something that I'm saying today that maybe in three weeks when we realize it's that information is not gonna be right or it's gonna be different. And, and we just have to know that going in. Um, so I think allowing myself the grace for mistakes, I think has, has changed. But for that project, the other side was going in and wanting to be the solution for everything. I wanted to be the yes man. Yes, no problem, because I wanted to show them that. I could handle it, but also I wanted to alleviate all of their issues. Now, another thing I learned the hard way was that created an extra 30 or 40 hours a week of work for me on top of my existing business that now I had already committed to and I already told them I would do. And I wasn't getting compensation for it. So if I wanted to hire somebody to do it, it had to come out of my pocket.
2: Giant lesson. Yes.
0: (laughs) Um, So tell us about... Your worst day
2: in real estate, and this can be like your entire real estate career. What was the kind of the worst day out
0: there? I had a reaction from a client recently where I it was the first time I had been fired from a client. I don't know if that's that's a good thing or it a, a bad seller thing. or buyer. A seller. So it was the thir- okay. first time somebody had actually called, uh, not called actually sent over an email. Uh, and requested me to terminate my listing agreement with them. Now a- as a real estate agent, you know I can only speak for myself on how I felt, but I, I'm sure it's echoed beyond many that that is the ultimate definition of failure in my career. And so that that was probably one of my worst days. But also, um, when, you know, it turned into an identifier of how I want to run my business because, um, you know, you know, I learned later that it was a client that I probably should have never been working with in the first place.
2: Is that the lesson that you learned is how do you better evaluate who you bring on?
0: How do I better evaluate who I bring on and, and, and how how important is it to listen to your gut and to be open and honest in all of my interactions? That was a client. I held a little back at that listing appointment. I held a little back at our, at our first meetings. And then when they would say things or they would interact in a certain way, I would tell myself I had to have a conversation with myself to be okay with some of this stuff where that's not that big a deal. Don't worry about that in the grand scheme of things. This is a huge listing. Don't worry about that, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. that's the only client that's ever fired me. Uh, And it wasn't based on anything I did. It was just based on the pure personality of them. Um, And I walked away feeling like a failure from a scenario that I never should have been in in the first place.
1: And to give yourself permission, I think, to walk away from those. You're obviously more seasoned than I am, but I think for me, it's been hard to know that it's okay for you to be like, oh, this isn't a good fit for me, (laughs) Yeah. Before you get into that.
0: Yeah. And so I've changed the conversations I have with clients now when I first sit down with them for a listing appointment. I, you know, I I, I say, I say one of one of the few things are going to happen here. I'm going to come back and you're going to not want to hire me based on, you know, our relationship, or I'm not going to want to work with you or hire you because it's Mm -hmm. a not good fit. Um, And I include that. I include that in my conversation that I might not want to work for you. uh, And we have to be okay with that. And that throws, you'd be amazed at how many clients that throws, that, that pure statement throws off. They just get this, well, what do you mean you wouldn't want to work with me?
2: <laughs> it changes the mindset. Yeah. Because wow. the mindset is one of like, well, you're trying to earn me. You're trying to woo me to we have to like each other. Mm-hmm. which is a much more equal relationship rather than a subservient and dominant relationship. It's much more of a brother relationship, a sibling relationship. Very early on, I decided that I was not okay working with somebody who didn't like me because I was gay. And so in the consultation speech, I, we were talking about pets in the house and I would always mention my husband was allergic to cats. And that was my way of coming out during the consultation speech. And I had a client call me up and she said, and she's a lovely woman, she said, these particular clients are moving to Arizona. They're a little bit more conservative. If you could please leave out the part about the cats, that would be great and I was like, mm, nope. hold on a second. I'm like, do you want me to not leave the part of the cat because the cats, they don't like cats? And she's like, well, I just don't know how they're gonna feel about gay people. And I said, look, I know you're coming from a very good place and you want to try to win this business. And I understand that. But I know for a fact that my service will make your clients a shit ton of money. And if they don't want to work with me because I'm a homosexual, that is their problem, not mine. There is not a chance in Hades that I'm not going to mention that cat during a consultation. And, and she was like I see you feel very strongly about this and I was like yes I do and we you know what I went I mentioned the cat we got the job they were totally fine about it she I think she even the client even said something the fact of like you know my hairdresser is the gay as well and I was like well fantastic then we have something in common (laughs) Wait, your hairdresser and your home says you're gay? That's insane. Whoa. You
0: know? All right, Aaron, best day in real estate. When was it? There, there's two best days. One was when I finally got the approval that, that, I, that I could get my license uh, and that the state would allow that. Uh, that was both the best day and the day that invoked the most fear in my life I've probably had in a long time, <sighs> which is oh my gosh, I have to do this now because I've not only told my <laughs> wife I'm going to do this, I've told myself I'm going to do this. So I was very scared. And the state says you have to do And the state says it. I have to do it. <laughs> and, then, and then it was that, you know, and- I can see it. I can visualize it. You know, when I left the meeting where I got the listing contract signed for the Midtown, that was something that was so big that I put so much work, but I had so much fear wrapped around. I was about a half a block away from the office because I, I walked to their office from my office. And I was on this little bit of a high where I gave myself about a half a block just to be selfish and kind of relish in in what I had accomplished. And then I called my wife and and I had not been that kind of giddy and high volume and just excited on the phone with my wife in a long time. I was so happy and excited and she was so proud of me. You know, I get home and there's a bouquet of flowers and the kids have written notes, right? They're like best realtor in the world and they colored all these pictures. And my wife's, you know, so proud of me. We go out to dinner, we celebrate. There's this whole celebration around this. But I think where it was my, probably my best day was not getting the listing signed. It was for the first time in this career, I had actually acknowledged to myself verbally that not only can I do this, that I might actually be good at it, that it might be something that, that I'm good at. It's not that I just like it and enjoy it. Somebody of that caliber saw value in me. And so for somebody, somebody who runs around this world with enormous insecurities, that was enormous for me. It's amazing what a bit of outside validation will do. Let me just say it straight out.
2: Amy, you are a fantastic real estate agent. Aaron, you are an awesome real estate agent. Both of you are completely validated. That will last for at least a good 30 minutes. Aaron, what's the best place for people to find you? My
0: my team website is AaronBloomRealEstate.com. You can email me at AaronBloom at And that's W-I-N-D-E-R-M-E-R-E.com because 75% of people misspell that. And my cell phone is uh, 541-735-1829. And I, I leave that and I put that out there for everybody because I encourage people to pick up the phone and call. I encourage people to stop texting when they're trying to create a relationship with somebody. Uh, Right? Make it personal. Call me, email me, set up coffee. I will. I will drive to you. You drive to me. I'm I'm an in person kind of guy.
2: Amy, what's the best place for folks to find you?
1: Uh, I'm at amyromberg.com easy to find. Fantastic.
2: Our guest today has been Aaron Bloom. He is a Windermere real estate agent in the Eugene area. Amy, of course, Romberg is our co-host and she is a real estate agent with Windermere in the Portland area. Our producer is Nicole Durkin. Our music was written and performed by Joff Metz. Our editor is Richie. He always makes us sound smart. Thank you so much. If you've got a story that you want to tell, reach out to us. You can find us at spade-archer.com. Just click on the podcast link. Thank you so much to all the folks that have reached out to us and told us your stories. We're excited to get to each every one of you. Aaron Bloom, thank you for being our guest today. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll see you next time Behind the Yard Sign.
0: This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.